Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Our prayer tonight is going to be given by my dear friend and brother, Rick W., his wife Carrie, uh, great uh, Christians, and the thing about them uh, is they seek. They are seekers of truth. Love them to death. Brother Rick. Father God, we come before you tonight, uh, those who, that uh, search for you. Lord, we pray that, that you would um, lead us in that journey, that you would guide us to you, and that we would have a greater understanding. Lord, we pray that uh, your spirit would be uh, here upon us, that you would lead and guide Sean in those things that uh, he says this night, and uh, that um, those things that you would want us to know, that we would be edified and that we would grow. Um, because of those things. Lord, we love you. We're grateful for you. We're grateful for the blessings that we have and the beauty of this world. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, my brother. Uh, remember, we have a new book out. It is personally uh, what I think one of the most important things we put together. It's called Knife to a Gunfight, Misinterpreting the Purpose and Place of the New Testament. Looks like this. And if you are a seeker of God in spirit and in truth, and you're willing to examine your religious traditions, uh, you might want to consider the contents of Knife to a Gunfight. It and all our books and products are available at www.hotm.tv. Last week we did two hours with Christian apologist Matt Slick of CARM.org. I respect Matt and his views and believe he has every right to maintain them. And uh, as a follower of Christ, I also believe that he has the right to teach those views, even though I agree, uh, disagree with some of them. Uh, I can do this, I can disagree with him, because uh, God's in charge, and those who seek him in spirit and in truth, no matter what men and women toss into the mix, we don't need to fear it. We can talk about things, it doesn't matter what it is. We can say, I believe this, I think this, I want this, I desire this, I don't understand this, I'm mad at God about this, any of that, it's okay. Because he wants us to seek him with our minds. So while Matt and I do not agree on many things, and admittedly, I am typically the one who leans more towards unorthodoxy uh, than Matt does, uh, in my estimation, we're all in the same boat, we are all rowing toward the same destination. Unfortunately, my brother doesn't always feel the same way about me. Uh, what seemed to have really pushed Matt over the edge last week was my views towards saying that I believe Jesus has one nature. I said he has one nature, that of being a human being. Look the heck out. Jesus had one nature, Jesus had one nature, and all the alarms and bells went off. Does this mean what I think Matt and maybe others want that to mean, coming from my mouth? It does not mean what they want that to mean. Um, but it is a statement that is really, really difficult for Trinitarians because they insist on embracing a concept that's known as the hypostatic union of Christ, which is a man-made term created by, I think, Apollinaris uh, and was borrowed from Greek uh, thinking way back. Simply put, the hypostatic union of Christ says that Jesus is both 100%, and those are the catchphrases, 100% man and 100% God. I have trouble with this man-made definition, 
but not for the reasons that you might think. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying that Jesus was not God in the flesh. I'm not saying that at all. I affirm the biblical, the biblical fact that he was the word of God made flesh and that the fullness of God dwelled in him bodily. I believe those things. But when he condescended below all things, the word made flesh was tempted in all things. That's scriptural. James says God cannot be tempted. He says that. Nor He can't tempt nor be tempted. So I wonder how a being that was concurrently 100% God was able to be tempted with all things when James says God can't be tempted by anything. You see, it's these types of things that throw me into, I'm not sure about this 100%, 100% hypostatic union idea. I read that Jesus learned, and we can read this in Scripture, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. He learned. I don't see how 100% God learns anything. Uh, that he was unaware of things. I think 100% God is aware of everything. As Jesus said, the Father knows when a sparrow falls from the ground. I don't think Jesus knew when every sparrow fell from the ground. And why, if he did, why didn't the 100% God in him know, for instance, the hour or the day when the end would come? He says, I don't know that. The Father knows that. Now, I know that our scholars have all kinds of ways of trying to fix that and make it work to describe how the hypostatic union of Christ works, but it doesn't make sense to me. I don't believe that 100% God would ask, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think 100% God would know why God had forsaken him. And so, having said this, however, we are also paradoxically faced with something that while he was man, he was not 100% man like we are. Now, I don't ever hear that talked about, but he wasn't. I don't think there's any man who uh, was born of a virgin, okay? So if he was a man, but he was born of a virgin, he's not a man like me, unless my mom was holding something back from my birth. Uh, I don't think any of us were conceived by the Holy Spirit, as it says Jesus was. So even as a man, he was a little bit different. Was he, I believe his nature was that of humanity, but even then, it's tough to do the 100% gig. And none of us were with the Father from the beginning, and none of us uh, were God's words made flesh. None of us have ever walked on water, except Peter. None of us could perceive thoughts the way Jesus did. And none of us have the right to call God Father from the womb. He was not our daddy from the womb, though the LDS thinks so. So admittedly, all of this, and in the face of all this, I have to wonder where this idea that we regurgitate. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. This is it. This is it. Say this. Hypostatic. We've got it figured out. Okay. I don't get it. Okay? It seems way too convenient. And too contrived, too human, and it does not taste right in my brain. And that's why when I read them and I see it, I say, I don't, I don't think I get it. So the, varios, the variables are too great for me. But because I refuse to accept these rhetorical tools, I am considered a heretic 
not saved, not a Christian, not a brother. My faith and devotions to God are openly rejected, openly, and called into question because I don't swallow what most everyone else swallows. So before Matt and I sat down, uh, we had lunch together, and he, he said, and, and again, we're friends. He said, uh, we were talking about the topic of who is a Christian and who is not, and he said, I can tell you in 30 seconds if you're a Christian or not through a series of questions. And um, this is the exact thing I think we need to resist. That, as we mentioned last week, there is one test in Scripture of how to know a Christian. One. And it's the litmus test. Who are Jesus' disciples? Those who love. That's the test. That's the way we know. I know of no other test to vet someone who claims Jesus as Lord. None especially if a person openly admits, as I do, that Jesus is Lord. They say, I have faith in him. I think he's the only means by which we can get to the Father, that he overcame sin and death in the grave. I profess that. And the only way you're going to know if I really am his disciple is going to be by the love I exhibit and the love you exhibit. So not only do I admit to these things, I try to share Jesus whenever possible. And we actually believe that we can look at people who admit these things, these things of faith, and claim they're not saved because they have differences in areas of theology. It's pretty astounding. But while astounding, it's okay. We all see differently. And dogmatic people who have lockstep theology in place, they have to be respected too. Just because I'm liberal in my views and Matt or somebody else is super conservative does not mean I have the right to point at him and say, you're crazy, you're, you're not a Christian. That just it inflames the fire, right? So my dear brother Matt, like many others, he has a system in my estimation, like Calvin did, that takes scripture and it creates a methodology that solves and answers and categorizes thought and even people without fail. And it's a system that provides certainty and absolutes and as such demands complete conformity to its core tenets. Hypostatic union of Christ is one of those core tenets. And if you don't accept it, you get a complete rejection. And so hopefully as we continue to talk and do things like this, we can break that down. In my estimation, this system is blind to a number of biblical facts and factors. Uh, and and it, it, this... But it's easy to embrace systems because they make it very convenient for us. And admittedly, my mind does not, does the exact same thing. I have a great tendency. I have to fight this tendency to see what I want to see in things. I automatically see what I want to see in thing, things and people. I make judgments, assessments automatically. And it takes resistance to try to say, wait a second, you could be wrong. So... This is just another reason why uh, we propose and promote subjective approach to the faith over what we have allowed ourselves to believe are objective stances that are true and must be seen the same way. Uh, and on this note, let me reiterate, I believe that there, are, there is an abundance of objective, objective truths out there, but God is the only one who understands them all. And God is the only one who has them in his hands. And he's the only one who sees the beginning to the end. We see through a gas, a gas. We see through a glass darkly. We're amber, ambering. <laughs> I had to do a book on tape today 
and I haven't been able to speak right since. I went to, I went to Rubio's and I ordered, I ordered a taco. <laughs> a taco. She's like, what? I said, I want a taco. <laughs> so, so love has to abide. It has to prevail over all things dark, dark, doctrinal. Dark. <laughs> you think I've been drinking, and I, at this point, wish I had. Paul went so far to say, to hypothetically suggest that even if we came to the point where we have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries, have all knowledge, though we have all faith, so that we could move mountains, if we lack love, we are nothing. I thank Brother Slick for willing to participate in this difficult enterprise and to let love reign over knowledge. He's always welcome here and on the show, and we're going to continue to try in the years to come to prove that the, the standard or measure of a Christian is going to be their love, and we hope that we can illustrate that between two men who see the faith so differently. We're going to have a unique show tonight as I'm pushing uh, the third uh, and final part on Satan to next week to address uh, what we can only probably describe as stream of consciousness program. You've already experienced some of it, so here we go. My daughters don't often get me gifts, and uh, I mean for anything, and it's kind of an understood deal in our family, and it's because I don't want anything. I don't want to be given anything. I, I never really have, unless I can eat it. If I can eat it, give it to me. But if it's not edible, you know, I really don't want it. But yesterday I was given a gift, and it's uh, called Under the Big Black Sun, A Personal History of L.A. Punk. And it's written by John Doe, who's one of my favorite musicians. And I grew up in a family that loved music, and a few of us were actually musicians, not me, that played instruments. But the love of music was central to my childhood and, and our family, and it's probably similar to your uh, families if you grew up with older siblings and or younger. So uh, from my oldest sister and her friends, I was vaguely introduced to some of the earliest founders of rock and roll. Now, I know we kind of think of rock and roll as having always been around, but it kind of didn't start that long ago, and it started in the South, and it started with some real cryptic guitar players, mostly black, the South, Muddy Waters. It started with some real down-home music, and then borrowed from country, and then borrowed some from uh, rhythm and blues, of course, and, uh, and then, cunt and then uh, folk music. So... By the time I was in grade school, I was getting ready for school to Fats Domino and Bill Haley and Hank Williams and, and of course, some Elvis and Ray Charles doing the mess around and, and Johnny Ray. Before I knew it, I was listening to the Everly Brothers and to Dion and Richie Valens and the Platters and, of course, the Beatles. You know, the Beatles, they, they brought it out there, Elvis and the Beatles. And the rock, as rock and roll continued, you know, over the course of my life, it, it went through stages and it starts to get more refined, more produced, better clarity, better instrumentation, better players of music. But the 60s came around and it seems like the 60s said enough of this produced stuff. And from my older brother, I got more Beatles, but now it's revolution number nine, 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 and Dylan and Joan Baez and the Animals. And then I had a super strong baptism uh, in the sounds of Hendrix 
and Black Sabbath and jo uh, Janis Joplin and Jethro Tull, The Doors. And in them, there was sort of a return to the raw, to the muddy waters kind of uh, thing. And you, know, and you can sense that when you're listening to super produced music versus the real raw. Uh, my next older sister introduced me to Dan Fogelberg and Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young. And, and then as she grew older, she got into Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and David Bowie and, and then Elton John. We had a whoop here in the audience or someone had a stroke. And I mean, one summer, my sister lost it and she got into this person named Donna Summer. And that led me to become a village people person for about a week. And I was singing Macho Man all over the place. But the music kept morphing and getting more refined and then return a little bit to the raw and then fall into the hands of the suits. The corporations would come in, more uh, production technique. And around this time, I started to come into my own tastes. And uh, I love, you know, Zeppelin. And, and, but then I started to gear toward the outlandish productions. I liked Alice Cooper and uh, Queen and, and The Sweet. And then finally, you know, I arrived at the mecca of production, KISS, baby. I mean, it was KISS all over the place. Well, you know, you cut your teeth on that stuff, and it's all there. Well, around 1974 uh, to 1977, music sort of got bloated, if you want to put it that way, and overly produced, and huge stage productions, and from disco to heavier rock to top 40, the raw and unrestricted freedom of expression from Hendrix and early Led Zeppelin had taken a back seat to really overly produced music. So in the end, I think around that time, to me, music sort of was like sitting in vinyl chairs, snorting cocaine under colored lights, and just like happy with itself. Well, uh, one afternoon, and I was about 15 or 16. In my parents' backyard, I know exactly where I was. I was listening to a radio station from LA, and the DJ said, we're gonna play some, a new sound from across the pond. And I remember exactly the first riffs to uh, Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols, and it came out of that portable radio and into my brain. And Unlike the studio albums of Boston and Styx and Van Halen and Kansas and now Zeppelin, they were doing these highly produced albums. Unlike the smooth disco beats, this stuff was raw. And in it, I heard an honesty, if you will. Uh, my next door neighbor, Steve, and I immediately went to the uh, Licorice Pizza. I don't know if they had those around the US, but they had them in California, Licorice Pizza albums. And we bought our first shared copy. We would pass it back and forth over the wall of Never Mind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. And I churned that album like no other. And in it, I heard expressions that people were probably hearing in Joan Baez and Dylan about social inequality and poverty and abortion and government control and oppression and problems. And these were real issues that spoke harshly but honestly to the things that people were experiencing, really living through. So almost overnight, I became a punk and remain so in my heart even to this day. So the early punk movement was unique, not only due to the music and to the themes of the music, but, uh, and the social misfits. That's the thing about 
punk music, music is it drew in a lot of the misfits who couldn't find a home anywhere else, a lot of trailer park kids, a lot of people who were socially dysfunctional, a lot of people who were in a different socioeconomic uh, culture, or parents who were abusive. A lot of them got into the punk movement. But in addition to all that stuff, uh, it was up close and personal in its uh, representations, and it refused to comply to social norm. So in terms of intimacy, bands at that time were used to going in stadiums and stuff, and I know there are exceptions to this, and selling tickets, and you'd buy your assigned seat, and you'd sit there and rock out to you know, Boston. Yeah, you might stand and cheer, but you'd be in these big arenas, you'd have your assigned seat, and they would be up on a stage or podium singing down and out to the people, you know, like, here's what I have to share with you. So with punk, it came these in-your-face confrontations and stage diving and mosh pits, very intimate, where the, where the singers and stuff would throw themselves into the crowd and they would be closer to the crowd. They didn't keep the separation with bouncers and everything at that time. And also, everybody and everything in the earliest days of it were welcome. It didn't matter if you wore a cowboy hat at that time. It didn't matter if you wore cowboy boots. It didn't matter if you had a shaved head. None of that mattered. What mattered is that you came, you represented what you were about, and you were part of that scene. And not to belabor it, but I remember when the Dead Kennedys came up with their first hit, which was called California Uber Alice. California had a uh, Republican governor named Ronald and he had just left office and a guy named Jerry Brown, uber liberal, took over in California and in California Uber Alice, the dead Kennedys mock the heck out of what Jerry Brown was going to do to Californians forcing us to wear hippie clothes and eat natural foods. You would think that them being on the liberal end of things that they would have attacked Reagan and the former administration, but no. They said, look, we're against anything that is going to seek to influence us in the way they want us to be and think. So in punk, everything was up to examination, like it is in many other uh, uh, fads, if you want, of culture. Nothing was sacred. Things... All things in this world, punk included, had its failures, of course. It was of the world. But at its core, its true foundation, not its pretenses, lay an unabashed drive to know and to be what you wanted to be in the face of the knowledge you accepted. That was, might be one of the better ways to describe that movement. So we come to religion. Coming to know the Lord... And to be a Christian, I've realized that organized religion has evolved or de-evolved in patterns very similar to rock and roll. Very similar. From its originator. Who was the originator? The muddy waters of, of music. It was Jesus Christ. Who was he? He hanged naked and raw, a criminal, on a cross outside the city limits. He had no place to rest his head. He was, he was considered the low of low. They thought he and alluded to him being a bastard. He was a social outcast. He loved people. From being martyred, his apostles, they come in. They're also doing the same thing. Then we come into a monolithic empire called Catholicism that rules and reigns for a solid thousand years to things becoming about money and control and acquisition of land to a bunch of private labels called Protestantism that broke out then, 
to more money, to more refinement, to more shows of the faith. We have the kiss then in, in Christianity, and you saw that in the 70s and 80s with TBN and all the televangelist stuff. Same thing, which started so real and so raw in the hands of its originator, and, but has gone the way music has, is, and, and it's become so overly produced and so full of elements that exist outside of what the faith originally started as, so full of PR and, and sound machines and social media, that its raw original roots, they kind of get lost. I think believers in their core, they know what their raw original roots were, but we just go along with what it has become. Robes and dirty feet have been replaced by suits and Tommy Bahama shirts and and open hillsides have become brick-and-mortar institutions full of pastors standing up and apart from everybody, not getting in the mosh pit with the people, being too, you know, whatever. You know, what's happened to us? Proclamations called the good news have been overproduced religious representations. Even when you try to be raw, it's managed in this world of religion. Where's the punk? Where's the deconstructed garage church of old. Where is that raw sound in the body now? You know, the ones that get together to love the founder and to accept each other, everyone in his name. When will we get back to that? If music can do it, why can't we do that? So I hope the Christians will let go of the corporate ersatz church plane and just seek to know and then choose to be known according to the knowledge they accept. All right. I recently had a good friend in the faith tell me something that hurt me deeply, and uh, it did cause me to reflect. He looked me straight in the eyes and said, you are a heretic, and I doubt very much that you are saved. End quote. And at first, the, the words made me laugh, and I couldn't actually believe he was saying these words, and I kind of said, you're really kidding me, right? And he said, no. And, but when I saw he was serious, they shocked me. They really shocked me, and, and they threw me into kind of a state of earnestness. And so I had to ask myself, is this possible? Am I one of those who, when I go before God, uh, will be the ones who said, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I don't know who you are. I had to ask myself that in all seriousness. So I unconsciously or consciously began a personal inventory and started to examine my heart and soul and my beliefs where I place my faith and trust, life's priorities, and the things that I accept as true, the love I have for God, the love I have for man, is it really there, all that stuff. And these questions rumbled around in my brain silently for a few days, and then I received an email. And it was from a teammate I had while I attended BYU, where I, where I swam competitively. And apparently there was a reunion of all BYU swimmers who swam under the retired coach, Tim Powers. And, and a few weeks ago, they all got together on the BYU campus. Of course, sadly, I was not invited for obvious reasons. But apparently, some of the guys brought photographs of me when I was a freshman at BYU, having grown up in the Mormon church. And these photographs were making the rounds with some of the swimmers there. And the former colleague thought I would find the pictures interesting, which I did, because they revealed a lot about who I was. I had forgotten, I mean, I remember always who I was, but I had forgotten to the extent of who I was at that time. 
Before I show them to you, remember these pictures captured the essence of my person at 18, 17 and 18 years of age. I was active LDS member, but as I've always said from the beginning of doing the show, I was one of the most evil people alive, okay? I was able to do the Mormon thing, but I think the photo and the look in my eyes and the way I was will express that to you. I was a punk. I was extremely violent. I was a criminal. I was filled with rage. There was no authority on earth that could tame that guy. None. No human that I feared, even if they could kill me, did not. And I could care less about women, girls, animals, or laws of the land. Here I am when I was 18 years old. like a gorilla. After serving a Mormon mission, some of the natural inclinations were redirected, but the core animal that you saw in those pictures remained completely. I tried playing the LDS game. I got married in the temple. I had three daughters, beautiful girls, kind, gentle, fearful girls. I exhibited leadership traits, so they put me in leadership. I was an elders quorum president. I was an early morning seminary teacher. I was a stake high council member. I was in a bishopric. All the while, that animal, that animal continued to thrive, remained. And if you crossed my path, I don't care if I just walked out of the temple, I would have hurt you, okay? Being a father, being a husband, being a bishopric member did nothing to hold the animal back. It was all pretense for me. I thought it would, but if I was provoked or tempted or inconvenienced, self, 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 me, me, me reigned. Then I came to know the Lord, the Lord, in one heck of a miraculous regeneration. And he took me and my desperately wicked heart and soul and by the reality of his only begotten son and the blood that was shed for me, he gave me a new heart. Now, my friends in the faith said he doubts that God ever moved into my heart, that I am not saved now, and I have never experienced that in my life. His assessment is based on some views that, of course, he think, thinks are unorthodox, Having been given a new heart, I was still, like all of us, in old flesh, and the machinery operated, operated around that heart had to change, and it took time. We even, I, I started in the Calvary Chapel School of Ministry, and I started to learn the Bible by and through the Holy Spirit. My heart started to change a little bit, but even there, I, I got into a physical altercation with one of my brothers in the school, and, and I quit the school once when they said, you've got to wear a tie to this event. I got up and I said I quit, walked out in the middle of a class with all the people, recalcitrant, rebellious, angry. But I could sense the Lord working slowly in me, slowly in me. And I returned to the class and I apologized to the one guy. And then I also at that event wore a tie. Then the Lord did something that actually captured me as a young Christian. He
He gave me that opportunity, put me, a baby Christian by all accounts, on live television. And every week I was forced to face life as a professed Christian before an audience of angry people who were from the religion I left and was now attacking. I never watched the shows, ever. But I know that I was in transition while I was in those shows. Not out of Mormonism, but out of a life of being really sinister in my flesh. And so people who watched those shows saw part of that shaved head guy still alive while on TV and coming through and letting Christ work. But slowly and surely, I was walking with the king. The apostolic writings in the Bible, aside from talking about missional efforts to reach the lost, are all about helping believers grow in their faith, which is synonymous with helping believers grow in their love. That's what it all has to start amounting to. Conversion is only the beginning, and the sign of true conversion, the sign of true conversion are the fruits of love, the fruits of the Spirit, which are not immediately obvious or present in any of us. And it's not an ability to argue. It's not an ability, it's not our knowledge. I can memorize that Bible as, a, as the ape you saw on TV and, uh, just a minute ago. It wouldn't mean anything. Knowledge means nothing. God has all knowledge. We have limited. It's not spiritual gifts like tongue and prophecy, but those are beneficial. It's love. It's more love. It's deeper love. It's love that is kind. It's love that is not boastful. It's love that is humble forgiving, long-suffering. The fruit of the Spirit is evidenced by joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, temperance. John the Beloved put it this way, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he said in 1 John 3, 14, We know that we have passed from death to life because... We love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That means we hold our tongues. That means we hold our fists back. We drop them to our sides. That means we bow our head. That means we admit fault. It means we take the humble approach. John, 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for God is love. And everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. I don't know how, how much better it can be said. Nothing ever in these things about knowledge. Nothing about doctrine, theology. I'm criticized now because I'm soft on the Mormons. I love the Mormons. I just had lunch with a, with a, a guy who's a Kingston. He's a, he's a polygamist. I just had a heartfelt conversation with him about Jesus and God. What are we going to do? He was raised in a, in a polygamous home with three mothers, about 40 kids. His dad is Kingston. We talked about love. It exuded from him. 
Is he wrong on his practices? He is. Does he believe in Jesus? He says he does. Do all Baptists believe in Jesus? I don't know. Do all Mormons? Who knows? All I know is there's things that get in our way to love, and those are the things that we need to talk about and resist. Paul tells us clearly that this love of God in Christ, he says it, bears all things. It bears homosexuals, transvestites, trannies, same thing, pedophiles, junkies, liars, corporate icons, disco dancers. It, it bears all things. It believes all things. It believes God will redeem. It believes God will save. It believes people will have chances. It believes he can redeem everybody. It hopes all things. It endures all things. John tells us clearly that by the presence of this love, we know that God is in us and we are in him. I humbly submit by the power of God, not by me, and his strength and love, that he has brought me not out from being, he has brought me out from being a very unstable, dangerous, sociopathic individual to be a man that is more like him. More. And that is a product of his spirit. It's a product of him doing the work. It's not a product of me. And that's what we seek to bring in everything we do on the show, to bear all things, to believe all things, to hope all things, to endure all things, with all being defined as all things of God. As to my friend and brother and his assessment of my standing with God, I believe he means well. I believe he wants what's best for me, uh, but I know he is Deadpool wrong. And I am a Christian, true and through, from going from being a wretch to becoming a son of God because of him in me. Let's open up the phone lines, 801. I don't know. 590-8413. 590-8413. And with that, we are going to show you a spot and come back to any phone calls. Beverly Eastwood asks offline, are you familiar with the CES letter? I am familiar with that. Apparently, there is somebody who wrote a letter 
And uh, from what I'm told, uh, I haven't read it, but that letter is really well written. It contains some of the great uh, questions that a Latter-day Saint could have, and it was presented to a member of the CES, uh, which is a church educational system for the LDS Church. And so Sister Eastwood wanted to know if I knew what that was, and I do. Maybe someday we'll get to it and talk about it, but I think it's pretty effective, and if you go online and type in LDS CES letter, you can probably find a copy of it. We're going to go to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on again. I just wanted to call and talk about last week uh, when I uh, said some things that uh, Matt uh, uh, kind of re had a rebuttal there on it, and I would like to try to explain what I was trying to say. Uh, I really only said about half of uh, what I was trying to say about the oral, oral tropa, Torah. Uh, when I said that they uh, passed things down from the campfires, that, that's true in some, in some senses, but there was written text. I knew that there were written texts. The problem was, and what I was trying to say was that those texts were, we don't have any of the original copies. And in uh, about 300 uh, B.C., uh, they translated the Hebrew into the Septuagint, which is a Greek form of the Old Testament. That's the first time it was put in writing in, in a language that people understood it that day. And it was written off of copy. But what a lot of people don't understand is that there was an oral tradition, too, that went with the uh, Hebrew writings. And the Hebrew language had become dead. People weren't using it anymore. Even the scholars were having trouble with some of the words in it. So that's why they translated into the Greek, so that the common people could read the uh, and hear and understand the language when they read it in the synagogues and everything. Right. So, so uh, what happened was this is a, this is really something that's interesting. Uh, later on, the English Bibles, the Catholics used the, uh, and I'm not standing for the Catholics here, but I. I, I they used the Septuagint, their Old Testament. And Jesus taught out of the Septuagint. He used the Greek. I mean, that's what's quoted out of that. But when the, when the English Bibles were printed, they went and did the, from the Masoretic text, which came about in about the 10th century, they, they, the uh, Jewish scholars tried to recreate uh, in Hebrew the Old Testament. And they used a lot of things. They used some of the old Greek stuff, too, but they tried to go back and put it in. They called it the Masoretic Text. And the Texas, uh, I can't even say it now, Texas, I'm not really a scholar. I'm just trying to tell you what, Texas Receptus? what I understand. Texas Receptus was part of that, came out of that. And that's what all English Bibles, Old Testament is based on the, the Masoretic Text. But now that the Dead Sea Scrolls have come out, a lot of people are not aware of this. Scholars are aware of this. There's, there's arguments going on all the time on the Internet about this. Uh, they found out that the Masoretic text, which is in the English Bible, the Old Testament, uh, are 14% in error to the English, I mean, to the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are older by a 1,000 years. So huh. we've got an error in our English Bibles, especially in the Old Testament. And then you have, you have your problem. So what my argument with, with Matt was, if you're out here trying to prove uh, your doctrines of salvation out of scriptures that are really in question right now as far as which is the right, 
which is the right translation, uh, which one's more correct. And the funny part about it is the oral traditions explained a lot of the hard stuff in the written Torah. The oral Torah explains some of that stuff. And without going any farther with all of this, I would say go to Wikipedia, and I'm not saying it's 100% right, but they give references in it where they get their information. And look up oral Torah. It is a word where they passed it down orally from generation to generation, which explains a lot of the meanings of the Old Testament. It was originally put in writings, and they started writing it down. I think it was like 70 CE before they even started writing the oral Torah down. That's what I, that was the point I was trying to make. I see. John, and, really, uh, really appreciate it. I love your heart, and I love the idea that you always bring to uh, account, look, the, the Bible, we don't worship it. It's not perfect. Doesn't that bother you, John, when every Christian, especially the scholars, they come up and they say, you know, the Bible is inerrant. The Bible's infallible uh, based on its original manuscripts, which we don't have. And I've never understood why they're always saying that. What's the big deal if it was inerrant in its original manuscripts if there's not an original manuscript left on earth? Well, the point I was also trying to make was that Jesus, the way he preached the gospel, was with witnesses. It wasn't sola scriptura. It was witnesses that saw him. I witnessed this. Oh. And there, there were people later on in the early, the first century, second century, people that died for their testimonies, martyrs and things. Yeah. Gospel is a personal thing that comes yeah. out through, through the Spirit working through us. Right. That's what I was trying to get across. It's and a great point. The source. Great point, my brother. I really appreciate it. God bless you, John. You too, and thanks a lot, man. I enjoyed your testimony tonight, too. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. We're going to Clint in Sandy, Utah on line three. Clint, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, hey, Sean. How you doing, man? Good. How you doing? Doing well. Um, I just wanted to call in. Uh, I've been watching your show for a little bit now. Found it after I'd been born again. Um, and I um, wanted to just I think one of the, the biggest problems is people aren't, you know, Jesus said, you know, they draw close to me with their, with their mouths. Their hearts are far from me. Mm. People need to understand is, you know, you have to believe. You have to let go and believe in your heart. You know, have, you know that's, that's, where, that's where the faith comes from, and it's faith that uh, is required in order for God to convict you and change you. You know, it's not, not knowledge, it's, you know, you have to have faith that starts in your heart. Sure. Yeah, faith is vitally important. We, we, we you know, we're, we got to believe on a lot of things we are not certain of, so why fight, why fight about the certainties of stuff and just kind of say, okay, this I'm going to go with, or this I'm not, you know? I, I, I think that makes much more sense. Yeah, and, you know, it takes a lot for a man to give up his pride and turn his complete control over to, to the Lord. I literally was about ready to opt out, but I, gave G- I, I, I decided to give Jesus one chance, and I'm glad I did because... That's where people find him. When you, when you get to the bottom, that's where a lot of people find Jesus. That's where he's waiting, isn't he? Yeah, that's where he was. That's where he was. He was, yeah. he was at the very, very bottom. Yeah, he was that way with me, too. 
Some of us, we, we, we have to learn, we pay a high tuition for the price of life, don't we? Oh, yeah. But, you know, that's, that's where you want to start building from. That's right. From, from the bottom. You, you got to get rid of all this, this worldly nonsense. God bless you, my friend. Thanks for calling in, Clint. Yep. See you Bye-bye. We're going to Brandon in Atlanta, Georgia, on line four. Brandon, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. This is, yeah, Brandon. I, um, I tried to call a little while ago, uh, a few months ago, but we couldn't get the audio to work. Oh. <laughs> well, glad you're uh, calling now. <laughs> I was wondering um, what you uh, had known about the non-social trinity uh, idea, or also called the economic trinity idea, and I uh, wanted to see if you thought that related pretty close to or not whether, to what your idea is. You know, will you do me a favor and explain it uh, in simple terms? I, I studied it, uh, and, but I don't remember the, uh, the differentiation between uh, what I call creedal Trinitarianism and economic uh, trinity. Sure, yeah. So the idea is that uh, when, when the first Christians were trying to explain God and they, were, they used the word trinity, what they actually meant was that uh, God exists in such a large capacity that he pours over into different realms of reality. So um, the way that we understand that, it would mean that he's always above us as God the Father. He's always beside us as God the Son. He's always inside, inside us, or really above everything, beside everything, and inside of everything. I and like that, it. Uh-huh. I like it a lot. Right. And so when the Word becomes flesh, the Son of God becomes, that is the incarnation of what God is already to us. He's already beside us, and it's just Him putting on flesh to live among us. I love it. That makes yeah. more sense to me. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense to me. There's one God, and he, uh, yeah. he's, just, he's just everywhere and in and above everything. So, so what's the argument? Quickly, we've got, we got Mark in Ireland, we've got Mark in Canada, and we've got Matt in Sydney, Australia. What's the big argument, Brandon, against the economic trinity? The argument is, you know, who is who's Jesus praying to? Why does he? Why does? How does one person uh, seem to draw on another person? And you know, I guess that would be it. But I don't have a lot of problem with that. But yeah. I guess that would be it. Yeah, God can do what He wants in dealing with us. <laughs> hey, really appreciate he that. Thanks so much All for right. sharing that, Brandon. And hey, no problem. Okay, bye bye. Uh, I love Mark in Ireland, but we're gonna take this in order. We're going to Matt in Sydney, Australia, on line three. Matt, you're on Heart of the Matter. How you going, Sean? How are you? What's going on, mate? <laughs> uh, I just thought I'd ring it because I've just been I've been watching your show for a bit now, and I used to I used to disagree with you with the whole Trinity thing, right? Yeah. But now I agree. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, because I, I stumbled upon something today. I emailed it to you today, but I stumbled upon something which is really cool. Huh? What is it? It's a... Um, let me find it. Wait a second. Are you <laughs> sipping beer while you're talking to us? Foster's. No, no, mate, no, mate. Foster's lager? <laughs> you know what that is. No, I don't. Uh, you there? Yeah. It says, why do I believe God is to be one? The number one has certain peculiarities. It is the only number that remains the same when you multiply it by itself. God can multiply himself. He can beget a son. 
the Holy Spirit may proceed from him, then many children can be born from him and added to the mystical body of Christ. They become particulars of the divine nature, but one remains. I love it, my friend. I'm going to get... Up. I'm going to get that email and uh, try to share it next week again. Yeah, champion. No worries. Thanks, Matt. God bless you, my friend. Thanks for calling us all the way from Sydney, Australia. No worries, mate. Love you, man. Bye. Bye-bye. Let's go to Brandon in Sweden. Sorry, Brandon's getting a little... We like the Swedes a little bit better than the Irish. Brandon, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How you doing? I'm doing pretty awful. What's wrong? Hey, my wife left me, and things haven't been going so well. Yeah? Yeah. She left I've you? I've been drinking a lot and stealing a lot. She left you because of religion? No. No, she didn't. But, um, but uh, religion is basically the only thing that's keeping me alive. I'm really, really grateful for what you do. It's, uh, you know, there's not really any churches for me to go to, and your, your shows are really uh, doing good for me. Well, thanks, Brandon. How can we help you? Can I pray uh, with you? Could, yeah, yeah, please, please do pray. Uh, you could also help me by uh, sending me your books. Did you send us an email? I mean, an address? Yeah, I've done it three times. Yeah, that's, that's because our administrative staff has a problem with the ganj. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, no, it's you I've been sending the emails to. Exactly. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, man. I, I'm really bad on emails and everything. I need help with it. But we will get them to you, Brandon. In the meantime, let me uh, do something which is far better than reading one of my books, and that's pray with you. The reason is we have people all over the world who watch who are in studio now, and we're, they're praying right along. And that can get to you in a millisecond. You ready? That sounds great, yeah. Lord, we are believers, and we, are, we belong to the household of faith of uh, people all over the world. And we, uh, we see things differently, we view things differently, we worship differently, we live differently. But we do have one thing in common, and that is our faith and trust in you. And we are grateful for our knowledge of you and we're thankful for your son Jesus Christ who came and he was us and he gave himself for us and we pray Lord that you will step in right now and you will help our brother Brandon you will remove uh, the clouds of darkness of depression you will help him to get his uh, his uh, substance abuse in control you'll help him to realize that there are solutions to his wife leaving him and uh, you will make those solutions known. I pray that you will equip him to get out and live life a little, to uh, get out of the house and see nature and, and uh, meet people. I pray you'll help him to tune in and hear the word taught and that he will not be encumbered by the things of this world, that he will resist the darkness that seeks to get us to end life and look to uh, the power that seeks to increase life and bless it. We love you, Lord, and I pray all these blessings that everyone praying for Brandon now will come upon him and help him in this dark hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Thanks, my brother. We will get those to you, I promise. But Hey, hey Sean, uh, is, there, is there somebody else I should contact uh, to send the books since you're kind of busy? 
Well, there's about three people in this room right now. In fact, the one who's in charge of it's walking up to me and showing me a sign. He'll follow up. He's really good administratively. Okay, that sounds great. Okay, my brother. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Mark in Alberta, Canada. Mark, you've only got a few seconds because I got to go to Mark in Ireland. Uh, or the course, IRA Ireland will come and kill me. Okay. Uh, um, first of all, I think that young man uh, of you, and when you're 17, 18, if you were culture club, specifically boy Georgia, would have changed him, man. <laughs> 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 I could just see you with that long braided hair. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, uh, what I want to say to you is, um, you know, I went through a lot of frustration uh, in my 20 years of marriage, and uh, I was a police officer in Toronto in that time period. And uh, um, there was a lot of things I didn't agree with in the Mormon church and that stuff, and yet uh, I was in leadership and uh, a thing whatnot, and um, it, but just didn't didn't settle with me, and it was only been a couple of years I mentioned to you before that I come to Christ, and I have a church here, it's a Pentecostal, even though I don't, there's a total difference from going from Mormonism to that. Anyhow, um, what I wanted to say is, there's a, different churches, uh, there's a, one pastor that's uh, it's a, predominantly a black church, and I go in the afternoon because of my work schedule, and his attitude towards uh, demonic and that's because he's from Rwanda and Africa. They have no problems with it, and he teaches that stuff. Hmm. But the white pastors don't like to talk about it. <laughs> huh. So everyone has different viewpoints and that stuff, yet you still can have your freedom to speak what you want because it's still biblical. Amen. And that's just all I just wanted to add. It's just, you know, a lot of these things just make the, the whole world go around within the Christian community. And I think uh, when people start picking on li little uh, doctrinal issues, then you start taking away from what God's love is, like you mentioned. And uh, I'll let you go so you can get to Ireland. Thanks, Brother Mark. A really great Thanks. insights. Bye-bye. And now, and now we come, last but never least, Mark in Ireland. Mm-hmm. I caught that little IRA comment, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, just to let you know that the IRA are officially disarmed, by the way. You're a barbaric yeah. people, is all I gotta say. Sean well, McCraney's saying we, that. So you're not Irish anymore, then? Ah, uh, no, I'm Scottish now. Oh, really? So, uh, why can you not do an Irish accent the way you can do an Australian accent? Well, it has to do with intellect. Uh, I can't stoop okay. low enough to get your accent down. Oh, you're really digging. Oh, wow, you're really digging. Now, I was, okay, I was going to call tonight because the last time I called, just for the people listening in, the last time I called, I seem to remember a certain host took advantage of a lag and got <laughs> so in a nine-second monologue about how uh, intimidated I was. Um, but... I'm going to, I'm going to, I know you believe in quid pro quo, so I'm going to hold back my, my, my nine-second retort for the next time I call. Okay. Because it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be fitting, given what you shared tonight about what your friend said to you. That's true. Um, about, right. That, so, that's true. Um, I, I won't, I, I won't, you know, not, not, not tonight, but you're not out of the woods yet. I've thank got nine seconds waiting on you. Right. Thank you for your mercy. Think about Brandon tonight. Mm 
Okay. And think about the first time I called a couple of years ago. Yeah. You did the same thing with him that you did with me. Hmm. You prayed for him and you prayed for me. Hmm. And when you think about what your friend said to you, think about this. Before I found Heart of the Matter, Sean, oh, I was in a bad place. I was consumed with guilt. I wasn't good enough for God. I was, I was just full of um, I'm just it, 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 taking me back is just you know it, it's difficult enough. I was just not good enough for God. I was full of um, impurities, and I wasn't good enough for here, and I wasn't good enough to do that. And it was taking me out. To use a line of a song, um, an Irish song, it was leaving that saved me. And if the, if it wasn't for heart of the matter. Mark probably wouldn't be alive today. Hmm. So when you're thinking about whether your friend, if you could call him your friend, said to you, you're, you're a heretic and you're not saved, if that's true, I'm not the only guy the heart of the matter has reached. There's others like me. So if God says to you, I don't know you, I'd be there going, yeah, but hang on a second. And there'll be other people around going, yeah, well, that's not really fair, you know. And, and there'll be, there'll be, there'll be kind of other people there going, yeah, but really, you know, it kind of it helped me and it helped me to know you. And if I can just take you back, I, I, I know we've probably gone over time, but I feel this is important. If I can take you back to last week, to Matslick, and his, his first ten minutes, um, and then he had ten minutes, and then you had ten minutes. So, statistic of the evening, because I've watched that a few times. Statistic of the evening. In Matt Slick's first 10 minutes, he quoted 17 scriptures. Okay? In Sean McCraney's first 10 minutes, he quoted none. Fair enough. In Matt Slick's first 10 minutes, he didn't mention the word love once. Not once. In Sean McCraney's first 10 minutes, he mentioned it five times and referred to it non-stop. Mm. Now, if you can disconnect yourself from Sean McCraney, who are you going to gravitate towards? The guy who's pounding that book, quoting scripture after scripture after scripture, telling you you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this. Or the guy who's there going, love, we need to love each other. This is what Christ preached. It's what he talked about. It's, it's his example. Who are you going to gravitate towards? Mark, you touched me. You touched my heart. I didn't think it was possible for an Irishman to do that to to me, the great... How dare you, sir? <laughs> Excuse me trying to be all spiritual. I'm doing my best here, you know? But I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be... I know. I'm not trying to be funny when I say that. I, I, I really mean it. I, I, you know, this is about as serious as I can be with you. I, if I've got a guy over here who is, by the way, far intellectually superior than I will ever aspire to be, you know I'm stupid you know that I, I fit every Irish stereotype that there is about being 
stupid. And I am. Pick. I'm a simple proctologist. I'm a pain in the arse. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't. Am I supposed to say arse? Sorry. No, I'm pain in the, in the rear. Um, and I will never be able to, to be that glib when it comes to scripture that, oh, it says in, in First McCraney 21. I'll never have that. But what I will have is love. Amen. <clears throat> and what, <clears throat> hang on. And I'll have that love because of heart of the matter. Because of the Lord. We and love you, Mark. Do I have time for one more point or are we out? You're getting applause now. Your head is getting bigger than it already is. Oh, come on. And there was you saying that I'm meek and humble and you know, all that. <laughs> Do I have time for one more point or are we, are we over? We really are way over uh, time. But oh, okay. will you call back next week? We'll take you first. No, take me last because I like going over, you know. <laughs> I know. It's the Irish, it's the rebellious streak in me. What exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much for going over. I, you know, I do appreciate it. And um, get, 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 if, if, you, if you take nothing else away from the call, take this away. No heart of the matter, no Mark. Mark would not be alive. Well, I'm grateful for heart of the matter then. Thanks, my brother. Oh, yeah, okay. You're not exactly disconnected from that yourself. <laughs> okay, let me spell it out to you. No Sean McCraney, no Mark from Ireland. No. I wouldn't have made it. You're a kind man. Praise God. Love you, brother. Okay, my friend. We'll talk, talk to you talk later. To you and we'll see all of you next week on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising the dawn's awaiting till the 